This is Micah chapter 3. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin, and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil that they have done. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace. If they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. The word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for Micah 3. Uh, help us understand it, apply it to our lives, apply it to our church, to our culture, to our world. Um, we want to know your word because we want to know you. So would you make yourself just a little bit more real to us tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so today we're talking about power, right? Now, power isn't perhaps something we talk about very often. And for some of you, I'm wondering what pops into your mind when you think of power. Like uh, some of the things that popped into my mind were kind of random as I went through this exercise. I thought of the pink energizer bunny powering the, uh, the, the energizer battery. Um, I thought of like power in your house, that you receive power from a power station. You don't really notice until the power is gone, right? And then it starts to get cold, and you're like, man, I really want the power to come back on. Uh, if you've been to the grocery store recently, maybe you've seen Powerade on the shelf. Uh, I don't know if any of you drink Powerade or have a preference of color. I prefer the purple Powerade. Uh, it's good. Uh, maybe you think, of, if you've been to the movies, uh, you think of superheroes, right? Villains and heroes, they have usually a power that they wield, either for good or for ill. Uh, or maybe you just think of, like, someone who has power over you. Maybe you think of your boss. Maybe you think of uh, a political leader, such as our president or, or the Speaker of the House. Maybe you think of those people and the power that they hold. So power kind of manifests itself in all different areas in society, right? Sometimes it's in like little products that we can consume and that power our lives. And then it's in people or institutions or authorities that 
exert some sort of power over us. And so I'm just kind of asking the question to kick us off, what is power? Is, is power the strongest person in the room? Is power the uh, kind of an act of violence? I'm making this person do what I want? Power can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. It's kind of this abstract term that we use to describe uh, things that really affect our lives. So as I talk about power tonight, I'm talking about the authority or ability to make things happen. So the authority or ability to, to make things happen. That's how I'm defining power. Now, maybe you think power is inherently evil, right? Products are good. But like we should never have power over another human being. But God actually made us in his image, right? If we go back to the Genesis chapter one, it says that we're made in the image of God, male and female. And that means that we share in the rule or the reign of God in this world. And that implies some power, doesn't it? If you're a co-ruler with your other human beings in this world, there's just inherent power in you. There's inherent authority in you over this world, over creation. Uh, and sometimes in our relationships, uh, in relation to other people. And that means that power itself is not inherently evil. Power is good. We can use power to, to do bad things, to do evil things, but it's not inherently evil. It's actually quite good. Now, Micah chapter 3 is about power. I read Stephen, uh, Stephen Um's book, uh, Micah, for you. I encourage you to pick up a copy if you want to dive deeper into the book. But he really kind of, kind of helped me see this theme of power in this book. And, and we're going to start by just going through this chapter, and we're going to talk first about a misuse of power, right? Unjust power by, uh, by uh, some of the, the rulers and prophets and priests in Israel and kind of the land of Judah. And then we're going to talk about just power, because I believe Micah himself models good use of power. And then we're going to talk about gospel power, which I think is kind of implied if we look at kind of the, the end part of Micah 3, but uh, with a perspective to the, the big story of the Bible, the kind of the grand story of the Bible. And so we're looking at a misuse of power, uh, uh, right power, and gospel power. Now, I think you should care because we all interact with power in some way. But if each one of us carries power, right, and carries authority in some extent, like, even if you're a kid, like, you can get your parents to do things sometimes, can't you? Like, that, that you're like, I want this thing, and suddenly you get it, and wow, what power that I had. Like, everyone has power, old, young, doesn't matter. But that means that if you have power, then you also have the ability to use it well, <laughs> to use it in a way that honors God, or to misuse your power, and to use it in a way that manipulates and hurts and doesn't honor God. And so we should each care about this theme of power and authority because we want to use the power that God has given us for good, for the good of others, for the glory of God. And so I hope that that'll kind of uh, help you kind of think about this theme. If you've never thought about this theme before or it's been a while, that it'll help you engage with this theme of power. Now, Micah, like I said, he starts with kind of a, 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 an explanation, a, uh, a description of unjust power. Unjust power, what is it? It's authority that uses others for its own good. 
Authority that uses others for its own good. Uh, Verses 1 through 4 say uh, this. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel. So what is Micah doing? He's already, he's addressing those that are in power, right? Those that have the authority in Judah. And he's about to use a a pretty graphic metaphor, uh, cannibalism, uh, to describe how they are using their power. Now, Cannibalism, uh, eating other people, that's not a a super pleasant thing. That's one of the reasons I thought maybe the kids should uh, go to the other room. Uh, But it's a metaphor, right? It's a figure of speech. Uh, Although there are stories in the Bible of of people eating each other, I don't think that's what he's referring to here. I think it's a metaphor uh, kind of symbolizing uh, the way that people are taking advantage of each other, how they're using each other to further their own ends. Specifically, those that are in authority are using those that have less authority or no authority to kind of achieve their purposes. So verse 2 says this, well, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice? Verse 2, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Charlie, you read that with such like a, like a deadpan voice. Uh, it was great. Uh, this is like a pretty dramatic thing that's happening, right? Like, Gross. <laughs> It's okay, we can get a little stirred up uh, uh, about it. So what are they doing? They're taking advantage of each other. Now last week we read Micah 2, right? In Micah 2 it talks about the leaders, perhaps the elders or the judges of Israel, the wealthy, using their influence to what? To steal the land of the poor, the the most vulnerable, the, the weak. To steal their land, their homes, right? So they're... They're kind of consuming them. They're consuming their property. They're, they're, they're taking their things to get what? To get fatter. Like to, to, to fill themselves up. As Bernie would say, they loved things and used people instead of using things and loving people. And I don't want that to be true of me or any of us. And so... That's kind of the indictment. That's the charge against them. But what's the sentence? We actually see God like passing sentence in verse 4. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. Now, one of the things that we've been talking about in this series is how like God is a perfectly just and fair God, right? And so we see kind of that fair justice, that fair judgment here, right? These are the the rulers, those that are in charge. They have turned their faces. They have turned their ears away from listening to the plight of the poor. And so what does God do to them? He turns his ears away from them. He turns his face away from them. God is going to hide his face. God's not going to listen to them. They didn't listen to those in need. God's not going to listen to them. That's justice, And so here we're encountering kind of this, this call, this call to, to think about the powerful and the powerless. Think about situations that arise and, and how should we treat those situations. I, wanted you to, I want you to kind of transport yourself and your own imagination back 
to this time, right, to this time period, ancient Israel. You're standing at the gates of the city Jerusalem. You're watching the sale of a widow's home and property to a rich lender. She has lost everything, will likely have to sell her children into slavery. But the rich lender, the rich lender did everything in public. He did everything in the daylight. We learned that last week. That means according to kind of the customs or or even if he was breaking the Old Testament law, well, people didn't really care. He lent her money, charged her an interest rate, and she couldn't meet it, and now he gets to take everything. Now, how does that make you feel? Like, do you, do you feel like this is an injustice? <laughs> would you try to help? How can I help this widow? Or would you think, well, the lender did everything in the daylight according to the, the law, so the question is, would you side on the side of the powerful or the powerless? I think most of us would probably say, we're going we're gonna to figure out how we can help the widow, right? We're going we're gonna to aid the powerless. But, the, but there's something going on in this culture, right? There's something going on in this culture where like, most people aren't helping the powerless. Somehow they're not seeing it. Somehow they're not seeing the, the, the needy and those that need to be defended, they're not aligning themselves with them. So I was thinking uh, this week, right, God of justice, we're trying to transport ourselves also and apply it to today in situations uh, that arise for us. And we're trying to apply it rightly to our culture. And so I wanted to kind of step into the present. And I, I thought of a movement, uh, the Me Too movement, right? Now, maybe you're familiar with the Me Too movement. Uh, it's this um, thing that we're seeing, I think it really has kind of come out of Hollywood, uh, but it's this, um, this movement where, um, uh, where women are coming out and saying that rich and powerful men in their field, in the entertainment industry, or in business and in other industries have taken advantage of them to say, oh, you want to get ahead? Well, here's what you have to do. And it's not pleasant. And so I want us to kind of stop and think about that, right? I think that's an act of consumption, right? One person consuming another person for their own wants and desires. But how as Christians, how as the church are we supposed to think about these movements? Maybe you've listened to the news or talked about it with your friends. But is there a way that the Bible calls us to think critically about these sorts of issues? Maybe... Uh, I wanted to ask yourself, like, what's your first instinct? And you don't have to say this, obviously, but in your mind, like, is your first instinct to kind of say, you know, I think the, the, the charges, that they're being overblown, right? There's, there's, uh, there's too many accusers coming out. It can't all be true. And kind of side with the accused. Or are you kind of mentally think, thinking, the, the, those that have been uh, uh, wronged are, are these ladies, and we need to really side with them. Uh, if they bring a charge, they must be right. Like, where do you naturally go? That's what I'm asking. Because I think each one of us has an instinct where we go to one side or the other. Why is this? Like, in your own heart, why do you think you side on one side or the other? Like, what, is, it, is it somehow you relate to one of the parties? Maybe you've been accused of doing something, rightly or wrongly. 
or you kind of identify with a certain like social class or a gender, maybe? Why, why do you think it is that you side with one or the other? And now let's, say, let's see what the Bible has to say about this, right? What does the Bible tell us to do? Well, the Bible doesn't say that we should automatically side with the accuser or the accused. It actually says we should side on the side of truth. And so we see in Leviticus 19.15, it says, Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. So this really is a call to truth, to justice. So when you see stories or you get drawn into conversations where someone says, make a judgment call, well, if we're to to be obedient to Leviticus, well, we can't make a judgment call until we know all the facts, (laughs) right? Otherwise, suddenly we're perverting justice. When I am making a declaration about that thing that I really don't know much about, I am perverting justice by making a judgment. And yet, the Bible also tells us over and over again that the poor and needy get taken advantage of. It's not the rich and powerful that usually get taken advantage of. It is the poor and needy. Proverbs 31, 8 through 9 says this, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Right, so there's kind of a, a balance in Scripture where it says, choose justice, choose truth, choose what is fair, and yet also recognizing because of sin, because we live in a crooked and broken world, the poor and needy are going to get taken advantage of most of the time. And so I was thinking about this Me Too movement, right? Because there is a question of whether or not some of the accusations are made up. And so how are we to know? Well, a 2010 study reported that only between 2 to 10% of allegations involving sexual misconduct are false. So that means 92 to 98 cases out of 100 are true. A 1996 report by the FBI, so this is kind of an old report, put that figure at 8%. Right, So 8% of cases are false. And yet the Bureau of Justice reports that only 35% of sexual assaults are reported to police. So that should make us think, right? We want truth, we want justice, and yet we recognize that most of the time these things are going to be true. And so as a church, I think we need to be concerned with truth, with justice, And be extra mindful that we live in a sinful world where it is not usually the powerful that is the victim, but the powerless. And I think we see this reflected in Scripture. In Scripture, Micah is encountering unjust power, right? Power that misuses its authority. And so what does he do? He confronts it. He confronts it with just power. And so I want us to look at just power. Just power is authority that lovingly corrects and leads others to God's goodness. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 8. Now in our next verse, verse 5, Micah again indicts or brings a charge from God against those prophets. 
We kind of started with the rulers, but now we're looking at prophets who only prophesy good if they're paid, and they prophesy bad if they're not paid. (laughs) Man, this is not great. Verse 5, this is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. That's not good. It means that they're willing to change what God's word says if they, you know, receive the benefits or if they don't. A true prophet is willing to say the good things and the hard things. These prophets are corrupt. And then God passes a sentence. We actually see kind of three of these patterns of indictment followed by sentences in this passage. See, they claim to see God. So what's the just judgment by God? God blinds them. God blinds them and says they don't see truth. Verses 6 through 7. Therefore, night will come upon you without visions and darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. God's just going to shut them out. See, if you claim to hear from God, if you claim God's authority, and you just use that to get your way, God's not going to talk to you anymore. And yet, Micah, in verse 8, he sets forth a positive example of power. That God has truly called him as a prophet to exercise true and holy and just power, good power, empowered by God, by the Holy Spirit himself. Verse 8 says this, But as for me, I am filled with power with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgressions and to Israel his sin. So what is just power? It's authority that lovingly corrects and leads others to God's goodness. And we see Micah doing that himself. Just power is not based upon oneself. Just power is based upon God. So it's not, it's not based on how gifted or talented or how strong I am. Just power is based upon God's calling, what God is saying and what God is doing through the Holy Spirit. Micah exercises a great deal of authority and a great deal of power, but he doesn't do it on himself. He does it based on God and God's understanding instead of his own. And so, the first kind of call to each one of us is that if you want to exercise just power in your life, you need God. You need God's help. You need the Holy Spirit to speak to you and through you. You need to understand God's word. You need to have a relationship with the living and true God because he is going to be the one that that corrects your course time and time again when you get blown off course, when you're tempted to use your power for your own good or to harm others. The Holy Spirit will help correct your course. And see, that's what Micah does. He lovingly corrects the sins of Israel and Judah and works to lead them back to God's goodness. God leads us to his goodness, therefore we can lead others to his goodness. And that's really what just power is. It's authority that lovingly corrects and leads others to God's goodness. Sometimes this is to Christ, right? This is leading others to to Jesus, but it's also just kind of this idea of common good. What is good for those around us and for our culture? That's what justice is. 
So take a moment, think about your relationships, think about your coworkers, think about the people that you report to or report to you, or maybe your kids, maybe uh, your husband or wife, how your relationship works. Think of uh, family members, the ones that you have a great relationship with, the ones that make you a little bit more holy over time. <laughs> think of your neighbors, think of your relationships here at church. What kind of power are you exerting in your relationships? Is it unjust power? Seeking to to kind of use your authority to get what you want? Or is it just power? Using your authority to lovingly correct and lead others to God. As I think about myself, I know that I don't always use just power. Right? Our natural state, if we're crooked and bent... Is, to, is to, to operate in unjust power. And so it's only by God's grace that we can exert good and, and noble and just power and authority in our relationships. And so this is a call, right? This is a call for us as we recognize instances of unjust power to confess those. Say, God, I'm sorry, help me to live a, a life of justice. To use the authority and power you have given me not for myself so that I can get the things that I want, but so that I can lovingly correct and lead others to you, to your goodness, to what you have given us. And what's the goal? Well, the goal of just power is to like, lead people to God, right? To, to lead them into a relationship with God because we're reflecting God and his character and his justice. How about Micah? What do, you, what do you think happened for Micah after he delivered all these messages, as he delivered kind of this, this book? And Micah is a, a series of prophecies probably over a period of time that have been put together. Right? So did he see any fruit in his ministry? The answer is yes, actually. People repented. They recognized their sin. They, they recognized their use of unjust power, and, and they sought the Lord. We see this in Jeremiah chapter 26 when Jeremiah is being threatened to be put to death. And the people reference what happened to Micah when Micah spoke some hard truths from God. Jeremiah 26, 18 through 19 say this, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. He told all the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, or anyone else in Judah put him to death? Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favor? And did not the Lord relent so that he did not bring the disaster he pronounced against them? So what happened? The people repented. Starting with the king, starting with those leaders, Starting with those rulers, they, 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 they actually recognized their sin and they turned to God and they found the Lord's favor. So never lose hope of what, what you and your relationships, you seeking to, to live a just life, use just power in your life, never underestimate what that can do. God can use that. God can work through that. But is it enough? Don't we need an, another kind of power? We, we have unjust power, we have just power, but we also need something that, that clearly leads people to Jesus Christ, right? Because we can, we can be good to someone, but is that enough? I don't believe it is. We also have to, to, to share the gospel with people in order for them to receive eternal life. And so we find gospel power in verses 9 through 12. 
What is gospel power? It's the authority that lays down its life for the good of others. So here in our final verses, Micah calls out all of them. (laughs) He calls out the judges, the priests, the prophets. Maybe you're familiar with the phrase prophets, priests, and kings. He's addressing all the different kind of branches, all all the different authority figures of the government. And he does it just, he's like a warrior. He just charges into battle. He faces these, these authorities, these powers with courage, with the Holy Spirit like rising up in his chest. And he says this. He says, hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Hear her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money, yet they look for the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord among us? No, disaster will come upon us. What is the disaster that is going to come upon us? That's going to come uh, as Micah prophesies. They think nothing's going to happen. Well, Micah needs the Holy Spirit because of the the level of destruction that Micah is prophesying. He's he's, He's prophesying the destruction of the temple in verse 12. And the temple is what they hold most valuable and dear in Jerusalem and Judah as a culture. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. The temple's going to be destroyed. Imagine how threatening this is to the people that heard this. I, I found this description of the temple's importance that I thought really summed it up. It's from the book, A Peculiar People by Rodney Clapp. Within Israel, the temple bore manifold social, spiritual, and political, economic, and cultural importance. In contemporary America, it would be the equivalent of the entire range of our iconic political and cultural institutions. The White House, Capitol Hill, the National Cathedral, Wall Street, and Hollywood. More than this, Jerusalem, in a profound theological sense, was considered the center of the earth. The hill Yahweh would defend against all attackers. And at the center of Jerusalem was the temple in whose inner chamber the king of the universe was known to dwell with an especially awesome presence. See, Micah isn't just saying, well, there's going to be a run on your bank or the church is going to burn down. He's saying that God is going to leave you. That God's presence is going to exit and it's going to be devastation on your entire culture, your entire way of living. You're going to lose everything because of your injustice. How do you think they felt? (laughs) A little scared, a little angry, maybe even murderous? (laughs) Micah reminds me of another fearless prophet. Maybe you're familiar with this prophet, Mark chapter 13, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. That's Jesus prophesying the destruction of the temple in his day. See, this is the prophecy that the Sanhedrin, a few days later, they, uh, this is like Passion Week, this is the, the kind of the final week before the crucifixion that they twist and use to condemn Jesus to death. See, when Micah prophesies the destruction of the temple, he's like foreshadowing a greater prophet who's going to come and prophesy the destruction of the temple. Micah prophesied the destruction of, of Solomon's temple, 
And Jesus uh, just prophesied the destruction of the rebuilt temple, Herod's temple. And they both risked their lives in order to deliver this message from God. Their lives were at stake. And that's what the gospel is. And Micah didn't lose his life. But the greater prophet, the prophet that he was pointing towards, he did. Jesus Christ had to lay down his life. He was wrongly condemned and crucified. Micah was willing to risk his life in order that the people around him could escape the coming wrath. And Jesus, he laid down his life. Was willing to prophesy the destruction of the temple and other things in order to lay down his life to to save us from the wrath to come, from God's wrath, God's judgment. So that if we repent of our sins, just like those people in his day, like Hezekiah, if we repent and say, I'm sorry, like I'm sorry for my injustice, for my sin, and turn to God, we also will be saved. See, to experience gospel power, we have to become powerless. We have to lay down our power before God and say, God, we need your power, not mine. And then what do we do? We go out and we become an example of God's power, of Christ's power, laying down our kind of lives for the goodness of those around us. Becoming a living sacrifice, as Romans 12 says. If you're a living sacrifice, you're just laying down your life day after day for those around you. It's not, that doesn't mean that you're powerless. <laughs> like To be a Christian is not to be powerless. It's to exercise the greatest power in the world. <laughs> Gospel power. The message of Christ Jesus. See, there's real and true authority and power in laying down your life for the goodness of another. Now, gospel power may be laying down your life day after day, just as you go about your relationships, your coworkers, your family, loving them, serving them. But it could actually mean laying down your actual life. I actually read a, 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 a I don't know, tragic, beautiful example of this. Uh, it happened in France. There's been a lot going on in France recently. The, there's the yellow vest protests, there's the riots, but there's actually been like wave after wave of terrorist attacks in France. And last March, there was uh, an incident at a supermarket where uh, a lone gunman took some hostages and a police officer named Arnaud Beltram a French police officer, he offered to trade places with a hostage. So he, he, he let the, the hostage went free, and he took the place of the hostage. And he actually lost his life. He died because of that sacrifice that he did. See, France needs Jesus. I think this is why it's so exciting that we're going to France this summer. We're sending a group of teenage missionaries over there. We've given some money to Thierry Marone, a French missionary, before. Although we don't know for certain the state of this man's heart, he is still a gospel picture, and his Catholic priest, uh, his, his priest actually thinks that he was a true Christian. Father John Baptiste wrote this of the officer Arnaud. It seems to me that only his faith can explain the madness of this sacrifice, which is today the admiration of all. He understood, as Jesus told us, that there is no greater love than to give one's life for one's friends. John 15, 13. He knew that if he, his life belonged to his wife, Marielle, it also belonged to God, to France, and to his brothers in danger of death. 
I believe that only a Christian faith animated by charity could ask for this superhuman sacrifice. If I understood the story right, the priest uh, went through like premarital counseling with him and his wife, uh, and so he knew him pretty well. Bernard is an example of someone in a position of power laying down their, um, not their power, but their, their life for another, becoming vulnerable and weak in order to rescue someone who is at even greater risk. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ did for you and for me. He laid down his life for us to rescue us. And that's the most powerful event in the entire history of the universe, what Jesus did for you and for me. And now the call as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, is to just go and do the same thing. (laughs) Just go and be like Jesus. Go and lay down your life for the people that are powerless, for those around you, for your family, for your loved ones, for your enemies, for your friends, for your coworkers. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the power of Christ Jesus. May this power through the Holy Spirit fill each and every one of us this week. May we, may we like willingly lay down our lives for each other. I pray for the offering. Would you bless it? This is one aspect of laying down our lives for each other as we give our finances to you. Would you use them in a powerful way? <laughs> to do far more than we could ever dream or imagine. It's in your son's name, Jesus Christ, I pray, amen.